0: It might be useful to begin the afternoon with just a little bit of reflection once more upon intention. Some of you, of course, have just arrived, and this is a time of really establishing a sense of intentionality—a quality of knowing how your your time, your energy, your attention is going to be dedicated as you begin your period of practice. And some of you, of course, are really in the midst of your retreat, in the very heart of your retreat. And I think there is always a value of just taking a moment to pause and actually sensing, well, where am I in the retreat? What intentions are guiding me? What intentions... Have I set? um, Where really is my practice really dedicated and going? It's interesting when the Buddha, you know, because so much in this whole path is spoken about around intention and sometimes saying that the, the whole of the path really rests upon the head of the pin of intention. And when the Buddha speaks about intentions, it's actually one of the shorter lists, it's only the three you know, the intention of of kindness, of befriending, the intention of compassion and the intention of renunciation of non clinging. And I I think sometimes it's very valuable to just have a sense of how how close are those intentions or how central, really, are those intentions in my day, in my sittings, in my walkings. Where is there that background of, of kindness, of befriending, of compassion? And, you know, this word, renunciation or unbinding... Unbinding, untangling from the stickiness. I'm often encouraged to to come back to the the kind of sheer simplicity or the simplicity of the essence of what the Buddha taught. You know, when when he says, you know, so many times that I I teach just one thing that there is dukkha. And that there is an end to dukkha. First of all, I think this is something really worth incorporating. There is dukkha. We know this. We know the the pain of pain, the aging, the sickness, the frailties of the body. We know the painful mental events, emotional events. We know about change and instability and how really the very essence or the very nature of change and instability really in some way makes a real mockery out of clinging or grasping. We know about these things and yet we often really find it far more challenging to, to live in the light of that knowing. To have that knowing really be an embodied understanding or a, a way of seeing everything that comes into our world or arises in our inner world. And so often instead we, we find ourselves in that third domain of dukkha where you know we, we just keep shooting that second arrow at ourselves. You know, and compounding what is the, the difficulties that are going on through our reactivity, through our judgments, through our uh, cravings to be or experience something other than what we're experiencing right now. And this is where our our practice is really concerned. This is where these intentions of befriending, these intentions of compassion, these intentions of unbinding are really so significant in this domain of, 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 of distress, which is, is really born of, of just not wanting things to be the way they are right now. Really kind of like them to be different. And the Buddha speaks about the end of dukkha. And, you know, that's important to consider the end of that, that almost reflexive reactivity, the ending of, of so much of the distress that is, is born of, of you know our kind of self-notions, our self-ideologies, the ending, actually the ending of the patterns of, of aversion and, and craving and resistance and fearing, that this all can cool. This all can come to an end. And here, you know, the teaching speaks so much about developing this unshakable freedom of heart, this unshakable freedom of the mind. And as we practice, I I think it is really helpful to have that aspiration somewhere in the neighborhood you know at least you know we may sort of really doubt it you know we we may really feel that belongs to people 2600 years ago or that belongs to people who meditate much better than i do but i think to at least have that aspiration in the neighborhood is actually pretty important because this is the essence of the path you know there is dukkha and there is the end of dukkha Recently I've been thinking about Dukkha in, in, in another way, slightly different way that you know, may or may not be useful to you. But I've been thinking in Dukkha more in terms of, of vulnerabilities and universal vulnerabilities. You know, and it's like, it's like the traditional teachings of Dukkha. When we look around us and we look within us, we, we see that there's no exemptions. You know, that this applies to all beings. This is not a personal failure or a personal fault, you know. This is actually the nature of life, particularly the you know the pain of pain and the instability and change. But vulnerability is also something that is very human. And here I think it, it can help us actually to come a little bit out of our, our personal story, not to dismiss our personal story, but to actually kind of widen the field of our awareness to actually sense the universal vulnerabilities that are so threaded through the lives of human beings. I think we're, as human beings, we're vulnerable to injury, aren't we? We know this, the injuries to the body, the emotional injuries. You know, that whole world of, of injury that is most likely woven into most lives. There's vulnerability within change and uncertainty. We think of all the things that we can lose and do lose. We think of all the ways that our worlds can crumble in a moment. And then there's a very very universal vulnerability around insufficiency the feeling of not being enough, the feeling of not having enough, the feeling of not being good enough, you know, and this, how this is a kind of almost a, a collective ideology, isn't it? It's a sort of collective, collective belief system. I think there's a lot of vulnerability around being out of control. Well, not, not being in control. Not being able to, to make life somehow be stable and predictable and certain. And I feel that in our in our in our own inner kind of psychology we we almost come to fear these vulnerabilities. I think in our world these vulnerabilities are often seen as being weaknesses or failures. And, you know, when we look at our lives, we see how much strategizing we actually do to kind of keep vulnerability often at a distance. You know, how much we create habits to keep things in place or how much we rehearse the future as a way of trying to control it, how much time and strategy we can spend in, you know, trying to get and trying to become to to somehow... G- calm and ease that aching sense of insufficiency, how much strategizing we do to defend against injury, against being hurt. And I feel like some of that strategizing and defending and fear of vulnerability is actually kind of takes us away from, I think, what this whole path of awakening really asks us to do, which is actually to embrace things as they actually are. Which, in my understanding, means also to embrace the fact of vulnerability. Rather than fearing, rather than protecting or defending or or fleeing or abandoning, to actually look at the, the very vulnerability of a human life and all the ways that, that you know, it can be hurt and injured, and, and also all the possibilities of a human life. All the possibilities of a human heart, which never actually leaves vulnerability behind. That actually the possibilities of a, of a human heart is not about becoming invulnerable. It's actually finding great freedom, great peace, Within the reality of vulnerability, I sense, this is so much a, an invitation in our practice, in our inquiry, in our investigation. What does it mean to be near, near to how things are, near to that, the vulnerability that runs through all things and a lot, of, a lot I've reflected on and how, you know, the Brahma Viharas or the noble abridings are really ways of caring for vulnerability. Really ways of tending to vulnerability, not only in ourselves, but also in others. And how they come to be ways of really finding a deeper sense of freedom within within that which is changing, within that which is unstable, which, within that which cannot be controlled, and within that very human felt sense of of injury that is part of being an engaged human being. And I think that the Brahma are much, in my understanding, much more than just kind of states they're certainly much more than just being poor cousins of insight they're, they're much more than just being you know kind of add-on practices that we do when we feel a bit bad you know to try and feel a bit better that these are actually ways of really addressing the very essence of what it means to be a human being that can be very awake and very free and that, who can also be very entangled and very fearful very fearful. So I think there is a great, there's a great value in just reflecting on how these, these attitudinal commitments of the Brahma Viharas, these attitudinal gestures of the mind are actually woven into everything that we do in our practice and into everything, all of the ways that we engage with each other and engage with the present moment. They are transformative attitudes. The biggest, or not the biggest one, but certainly the foundational one is an attitude of metta. If you really reflect upon the history of kindness, the history of befriending, how much this was really seen to be the primary, most transformative response to fear and to aversion. how this can change our relationship to vulnerability rather than abandoning vulnerability, that we can learn to stand in the midst of vulnerability with this attitude of befriending, of, of, of kindness. The biggest shift that I ever see people make in practice, actually, is the shift from aversion and fear to metta. I, I actually don't ever see any bigger shift. And if you think about how radical that is, I mean, sometimes we, we might feel that, have a little taste of that. But to, to hold the idea, to entertain the possibility of making that shift so profoundly that <coughs> aversion and fear really don't govern It is a journey. It is a journey, the shift from aversion and fear to befriending. It's a journey I think that draws in so many of the, the other kind of ennobling qualities in this path. It it takes patience. It it takes the, the willingness to learn to restrain around aversion. You know, an aversion's not just big spells of hatred, you know, it's that it's kind of that background irritation, you know, things I don't like the way they are, um, you know, to, to actually really have the, the courage and the patience to actually really not feed patterns that are unhelpful to us, to not feed patterns that are helpful. Aversion, I think, is quite addictive for many people. It's kind of juicy, you know, can kind of make you feel sort of self-righteous, you know. But aversion is a self-builder. You have to bear with me. I have this really this virus that doesn't go away. Learning to cultivate the intention, the attitude of metta throughout our day in all of the moments when aversion (laughs) arises, (coughs) in the moments when Irritation or anxiety or fear arise. Learning to cultivate this attitude. Compassion. To be able to see aversion as suffering. I very much come to feel that our relationship to pain comes to determine who we believe ourselves to be. And how we live our lives. If we fear pain, our lives become very agitated. Agitated with strategies of avoidance. Of pushing away, of closing down. Compassion lies in our willingness actually to embrace pain. Embrace life. And our, the shape of our life becomes very different. Rather than agitation, it becomes more still with greater quietude. We need to make room for joy. Joy is so much the response to this sense of insufficiency. You know, you really have this feeling when there's, when in any moment when there's a sense of not enough or not good enough, how the eyes, the ears, the body, the mind starts to, to reach out searching for something better, something to answer this feeling of lack. It doesn't always occur to us that the cultivation of joy is the most effective response to a sense of lack. When we speak about joy in this teaching, you know we're not speaking about bubbly exhilaration. We're not speaking about elation or excitement. We speak about making the room to appreciate, to be touched by the lovely, to sense what is well even amidst the difficult or the challenges, but to cultivate a heart that can be touched, a heart that can actually be gladdened. A lot of wise use of our sense doors is helpful here. You know, when we, when we move through our day, how wholeheartedly do we see? How wholeheartedly do we listen? Do we make the space to be simply aware and touched and mindful of that which is lovely, that which is well? Joy is never a denial of sadness. It's not a denial of the difficult, but it's not a reward for having worked the difficult out. It's not some kind of, you know, goody that comes as a result of having worked on things. You know, the, the Buddha was so clear that, in saying that in a mind of happiness, attention finds a true foundation. This is something so worth considering. How much do we actually really have a sense that happiness or well-being, contentment, gladness, that this is the mind where attention will easily gather Where attention, we really want to make a home in the present moment. And, you know, rather than kind of getting into our our projects and, you know, the earnestness of our our practice, I I think sometimes it's so useful to, to pause and actually really just sense where is the gladness of the mind in this moment? Where is the easefulness of the mind of this moment? Whereas the happiness of the mind at this moment is this kind of counterintuitive, you know, because I think we are so conditioned to believe that happiness comes after we've got rid of the unhappiness. If, if there's anything that my practice teaches me over and over again, it, it's about coexistence. It's not about these dichotomies, you know, that happiness goes away, I'm happy. You know, pain goes away, I'm easeful. You know, scatteredness goes away, oh, I'm collected then. To to actually learn about coexistence. You know, you check in with your body just now. There might be something that's uncomfortable or painful. And then you, you check in with the palm of your hand, the back of your neck, actually feeling just fine you know coexistence is actually the nature of how things are you know the the, the rain coexists actually you know with 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 the, the 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 brightness in the sky you know the the weeds are coexisting with the flowers you know coexistence is simply a reality and i think as we start to notice that and really are aware of that we get less more and more out of the mind that says you know i've got to Work on this, and then there'll be happiness. You know, maybe in the midst of the sadness, we begin to notice what is actually easeful. Or, or in the midst of the, the craving, we begin to notice that possibility of just touching the earth in a way that it feels like it's enough in this moment. It's enough in this moment. In the midst of the scatteredness, scatteredness we cultivate that capacity for connectedness. Oh just now, just this one breath, or just this one footfall. We actually learn to prioritize a little bit this sense of of cultivating a mind of, of ease and happiness and gladness, and then you see how much more easily attention comes. Making room for joy. Beginning to explore that, that real attitudinal commitment to, to equanimity and to balance. You know in, in the early teachings, you know equanimity is so much used interchangeably with Nirvana, and has so much to do with blowing out the fires, blowing out the fires, and it begins with our willingness to be equally near all things, equally near all things. And to examine whether we really actually have that willingness. We're very willing to be with the lovely and the pleasant and, you know, the the soothing cup of tea. Probably less willing to be equally near the the kind of noisy dishwasher or, you know, the the restless person in the room or, you know, the, the unpleasant sensation in my knee. But this is where we, this is our classroom. This is a classroom of beginning to blow out the fires. Because the fires, of course, are the fires of, of aversion and craving. These are the fires that, that consume our attention. They're the fires that create so much busyness. There's the fires that, that actually lead us to be always moving away from vulnerability and trying to <coughs> find somewhere that is safe and predictable and in control, we learn to calm those fires really as much as we can moment to moment. Sometimes we think, you know, the little moments don't really matter. You know, we think, no, that little irritation doesn't really matter. Or, you know, that that little uh, just that little bit of craving you know that little fantasy doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things and on one level of course it doesn't but actually what we see is, is the, the little moments they're, they're kind of like all the arms and the legs of the big moments learning to, to cool the fires to, to stand in the middle of it's of course where we already stand but we learn to stand in the middle of with, with poise and with balance and with that willingness to be present. And to be present within the vulnerabilities that arise in the mind and the body, with kindness, with care, with compassion. Really seeing moment to moment where we can walk a pathway where we both recognize that there is dukkha, And that there is a possibility of the end of dukkha. I think I'll stop there while I'm ahead. Thank you for your attention.